1: sword and laser. I'm Veronica Belmont.
0: And I'm Tom Merritt.
1: And we are joined tonight by author Peter Brett. Peter, thank you so much for joining us here on the show.
0: Hi, thanks for having me. Peter is the author of The Demon Cycle books. Uh, the first volume was published in the UK by HarperCollins' Voyager imprint in 2008 as The Painted Man, and in the US by Del Delray as The Warded Man. And his latest book, The Daylight Ward, which is the third in the series, came out February 12, 2013. He's currently working on the fourth book in the series, The Skull Throne, which I'm sure people are upset that we're pulling you away from right now.
2: <laughs> I, uh, I made my word coat. Quote for the day, so okay, I am good, good. I'm free to do whatever I want until tomorrow morning, and then I have to get back to it.
1: Nice. And uh, oh, by the way, people who are watching live, if you have questions that you want to submit, we are also uh, we have the live Q and A plugin installed, so we can take your questions um, as the interview goes on. But we have tons of questions from our audience. I'm just curious. So, what, what is your word quota for the day?
2: Uh, I have a very um, achievable word <laughs> quota of a thousand words a day. That is about what I can do consistently every week. Um, So sometimes I exceed, uh, like most weeks I'll exceed it. Um, Some weeks it's a struggle to get up to 5,000 words, but that's what I kind of guarantee myself and my readers that, okay, that's what I'm doing every week. And so balancing that with kind of raising my daughter and doing all the admin side of work and everything is something that I can achieve every week. Um, I've tried setting the goal higher, but then if you start missing it, you get used to missing it, and then once you're like, well, I always miss it, whatever, then you're not working as hard. So, set something you can do, and then keep up with it.
0: It's yeah, I, having just done National Novel Writing Month, where it's 1667, a thousand is still a lot, uh, so that's, I'm, I'm certainly impressed, if you can keep that going up for more than a month, you know, as you surprisingly.
2: Managed it for six months now, and uh, like I've amazed myself with it. But this book's coming along really well.
0: Well, we got a few questions of our own before we get to the audience questions. Uh, I was watching a video of you doing q and A Q&A at a bookstore, uh, and you talked about your popularity in Germany. Do you consider yourself the dark David Hasselhoff of fantasy?
2: <laughs> I've been referring to myself as the David Hasselhoff of fantasy for years now. Um, the books. Uh, always did very well in the UK, right from the start. Um, I had a slower start here in the US, mainly because the cover of the first book was just this like weird symbol on a blue background and didn't really grab readers. So, uh, but in Germany, the books took off. And for a long time, I had sold more books in German than I had in English, like US wow. and UK combined. And so I started referring to myself as the David Hasselhoff of
0: fantasy. <laughs> Um, I
1: think I think that's a fair comparison.
0: I like <laughs> yeah. it. That made me laugh when I said it.
1: Now, is it is it true that you wrote uh, "The Painted Man" on an IPAC, uh 6515 while in the New York subway, or is that just yeah, part of the mythology?
2: You were the first. You're the first interviewer to get that device, right? Ever, like somebody quoted it as a BlackBerry, like early on, and I've been fighting that like misinformation for years. But yeah, I I wanted to write, and I didn't have a lot of free time. I had a Job and responsibilities in life, and so I had this commute to and from work that was about an hour and a half a day. And instead of reading during that time, I decided to try writing. And amazingly, for for whatever reason, I write more words per minute on the subway than anywhere else ever. I think it's because there's no the internet. Down there. Yeah. There's, no, there's nothing to distract you. Like in my office, my office is filled with awesome things and, and you know, the seductive allure of the internet. Um, and even when I'm out and about, like Wi-Fi and, and um, you know, data on your phone has made it possible to, to stay connected to everything else all the time. And the subway is the one place where, like, nobody can reach you. and So it's, it's become an easy place to work.
1: Well, it's a good thing you don't live here in the Bay Area because our subway has Wi-Fi.
2: Yeah. <laughs> They're slowly doing it in New York, too, and uh, I have mixed, very mixed feelings about it.
0: <laughs> now, it says on your Amazon profile your friends call you Pete, which would make sense, Peter, Pete, but it's spelled P-E-A-T. Is there a story behind that?
2: That was something that I thought was a really funny way to spell my name in seventh grade when I was okay. doing, uh, I was taking like advanced art classes, and I would sign my name, my name on paintings, P-E-A-T, and I thought it was really funny then, and, and in seventh grade it was, but then I haven't been able to get rid of it. Uh, my parents spell it that way now. All my Aww. friends do. Uh, I, when I started a, a real professional job, I tried to switch back to Peter and... Somehow it crept in, and even people at my job were, were spelling it that way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Is that like would that be the proper spelling of like peat moss?
2: Yeah. Is yeah.
1: That, that that kind of peat? Okay. Just making sure. Um, so you've been compared a lot to, to, to writers like George R. R. Martin, Joe Abercrombie, kind of that that dark, gritty fantasy genre group. Um, and and before that was, you know, that that was very popular. It was pretty cool. And now people are saying, oh, we're kind of tired of like the grim, dark stuff. Do you feel like? Do you feel like that's true? And and how do you feel about the whole dark fantasy kind of uh, situation that's been going on in recent years?
2: Uh, I mean. George R. R. Martin was a massive influence to me, and so uh, it's, it's an honor to be compared to him, and I, I'm, I'm proud of that. Um, and I know Joe personally, and, and Joe and I have had conversations about how, you know, we read tons and tons of fantasy books in the 80s and 90s that were very, you know, PG. And when we read Game of Thrones, suddenly it was like, wow, this medium can do everything that the other mediums can do. And... and you became, you realized just how much you could do in a fantasy novel, and how much it was capable of, and what the reach was. And so, I think there were a lot of us—Pat office Scott Lynch—you uh, know—who all started, you know, eagerly going, "Wow, I can! This is a great playground." And uh, I think we've turned out some stuff that's maybe more mature than the stuff that was in the eighties and nineties. Not to not to be disrespectful to that, because I loved. Terry Brooks and David Eddings and, and whatever, but, but there was a certain amount of safety in those stories where you knew nothing really bad was ever going to happen and I think that that took some of the tension out of it and took some of the mature themes that like adults talk about and think about and kept you from being able to really explore them. Uh, that said, like I don't consider my work grimdark. I mean, some really bad things happen to people now and then, but overall like, like Joe Abercrombie, like, I love him and I love his books, but sometimes you, you finish them and you're so depressed, and you're like,
1: wow, every <laughs> You're like, I need a drink. Comeback.
2: And I, I don't think that I, I go to those lengths, um, but I also want readers to feel that characters are really in danger sometimes, uh, and not just of dying. I mean, killing off a character has become a thing, uh, but there's lots of awful things that can happen to characters, and, and I want readers to be afraid of that when, when they're reading, because I think that that makes them invest more, and, and, and it makes me invest more. Um, so I, I don't know that people are getting tired of it, because I think that the Grimdark label is thrown around a lot, but usually when you ask someone to define Grimdark, and they tell you, it was like, well, it's a hopeless, dystopian story where you know, all, everyone is horrible and nobody ever does good things. And, and, and you get to the point where you're like, what book are you talking about? Because I don't know any book that's that right. terrible. Um, and, and so I think it, it's become this sort of boogeyman that's not actually exemplified by any actual books that people can name.
1: Well, I think it's interesting, too, because, I mean, there's a difference between a book having real stakes versus, you know, kind of erring on the side of Grimdark, which can be a, a little more maudlin, a little more, like, intensely violent than you might typically read. I think stakes, stakes are normal. Like, a book should have real stakes, and I think that's part of what makes it believable, and you, you get invested in characters when you know things can happen to them.
2: Yeah, and so, look, I live in New York City. Like, horrible things happen to people every single day, and that's part of life, and I, I want to be, I want to feel free to explore any of those things in my stories. I, I, I don't necessarily, like I don't go in looking to say, well, I need to add some you know, really harsh violence here, or I need to kill a character there, you know, to make it live up to my reputation. I, I just tell the stories that I want to tell and, and kind of put characters into stress situations and see what they do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's much more interesting to me as a reader if you don't know everybody makes it out alive sometimes I guess there's a there's a time and a place for a fairy tale story with a fairy tale ending uh but I enjoy I enjoyed the tension a lot more myself let's get to some goodreads forums uh questions Ben says I've seen the first book in the demon cycle series called both the painted man and the warded man we mentioned that in the introduction uh which is because one of them is United States the other is UK he wants to know which is the preferred title
2: well, that's actually changed. Uh, it was originally my original title was the Painted Man, and I took the book to market with that the book sold with that title. Um, and then Del Rey Books wanted to change the title, but they kind of uh, sat on their hands about making a decision about what the new title would be. Hmm. I sent them in, like an exhaustively long list of other potential titles, uh, one of which was the Warded Man. And they didn't make a decision. And in the UK, they were moving towards print much, much faster than in the US. Um, and they asked if they could just go with the title that I had given it. They were fine with it. And so I gave them permission. And then maybe two months later, Delray uh, came back and decided on The Warded Man, uh, which has been very it has been difficult uh, brand-wise, to kind of promote the same book with two different titles and and get the wonderful reviews I was getting in the UK to sort of carry over in the US, which I think may have contributed to this, the book's sort of slow start here. Um, but over time, I've actually come to prefer The Warded Man as the title. I think it's hmm. much more appropriate and fits in with the story much better, and I only wish that I'd just been able to... Have the same title in both markets. It just
0: would have been easier.
1: Why? Why do they come to that kind of decision? Like, what is yeah. what is the, the thought process there? They, they just they think, think it's like will of like Harley
0: or something with tattoos. <laughs> I.
2: This is the thing where, like, especially when you're a first time author and you're dealing with publishers, there are lots of meetings that you're not invited to, where they discuss your work in detail and make big decisions. And one of there were a couple of uh, title meetings that I was not privy to. So I don't know why they didn't like The Painted Man. It's been suggested to me that uh, The Painted Man is, in some uh, places, a racial slur. And so I, it might have been that, but I don't know for sure. They had also said that they wanted something bigger. They thought that the book sort of stretched out of the fantasy market and could be mainstream, and they wanted like a big you know, encapsulating title to cover that. They uh, had proposed Nightfall... Which would have been a wonderful title if it wasn't also, uh, you know, a famous science fiction story in its own right. Um, and so I think that they, because there's a lot of characters in the book in the story, not just the warded man, they wanted a, a title that could kind of encapsulate all of the different characters and and, all, and like the sort of breadth of the story, but. Nobody, like, between my agent and me and the and the editor and, and publisher, like, nobody could really agree on something that everybody was happy with. Mm-hmm. Um, so we ended up with The Warden Man, but I I am really happy with that. I think that that title really sums up the book well and uh, got us off to a good start.
1: And then uh, we also have a question from Nadine who wants to know, so when did you start to think up or come up with the idea for the Demon Cycle series, and, and how did it kind of come about?
2: Um... Uh, it actually kind of grew out of September 11th. Uh, I was in New York City when, uh, when the attack happened, and I could see you know, the towers burning from my window, and I was really struck by how everybody reacted differently to the event. Everyone was terrified, all of us, and some people ran to the, to the towers trying to help, some people ran to, to hospitals to donate blood. Other people ran home to get to their families. Other people just ran away from the event and didn't really care and and uh, some people saw that the subways were down and, and uh, we'd all just kind of hold up in the office and said, well let's sit and wait until we have somewhere to go like there's no sense in just running around, but you could look out the window and see on the streets. Some people were frozen with fear, some people were manic and that idea of how fear affects everybody differently was something that I really wanted to explore. Um, and so I created a kind of fear that people couldn't fight, which was these immortal, indestructible demons that regular weapons just couldn't harm them. And so the idea was that if you get caught out with the demons, you're just going to die. And so the only way to protect yourself is to kind of hide behind these magical symbols that will ward them off. and. I did that to kind of explore what that does to people and how that how when you're put in that sort of stress situation, uh, the same way like in The Walking Dead where you're surrounded by zombies the whole time, like how do people react in those situations and how do they treat each other? And and that's the real story. The demons, you know, like the zombies in Walking Dead uh, are window dressing to help put characters into these sort of tense situations. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of the story grew out of that um, and the the sort of all of the media that I was consuming at the time. But obviously it's grown much beyond that since then.
0: Christina uh, wants to know something which I think is a good follow-on to that. One of the things she likes best about your books are how distinct and real the different cultures feel. Was there a lot of research, or how much research went into that? Uh, and was there a specific culture that influenced the Crazians and their rituals? Am, and uh, Am I saying Crazians right?
2: It's, it's Uh Okay. Uh, yeah. There were several cultures that influenced them. And I think that people keep trying to nail down, like he's talking about this one specific, you can't see my hand. Uh, he's talking about this one specific culture when in fact they're an amalgam of several cultures. So their basic uh, hierarchy system is based on feudal Japan, uh, the idea that there's... Uh, two castes. There's the warrior caste and the religious caste, and they both fulfill different roles in the society. And then there's the, the lower castes who are kind of servants to those two upper ones. And so there's that that basic thing was taken from Japan. Um, and then I have the sort of warrior training ritual, where the, the warriors are taken in very young and trained to fight demons, and that is based on the Spartan um where they would take children and, and, and train them to be warriors from a very early age in a brutal, brutal kind of training. Um, and then obviously there's a ton of Middle Eastern flavor uh, sort of put over that. Um, the, the drink that they drink is, is like Turkish Rocky and, and the sort of the way that the, the women are, are treated in the society is, is uh, kind of like medieval Middle Eastern countries. And so there's a lot of different things there that I took these pieces that I know would feel real because they are real, but I sort of blended them together, and a lot of stuff I just made up. And so it's not meant to, to be a critique on any particular culture. It's, it's more trying to create a culture that feels alien to, to, to the more Western culture in the series, but that is relatable to, to people in our world.
1: And so how much how much research do you have to do into that kind of thing? Is that something that you were interested in previously or did you specifically jump into that to kind of feed the book
2: uh, i was I mean I've always been interested in other cultures I had done a lot of reading about medieval Japan I'd done a lot of reading about ancient Greece and um, again at the time like right after September eleventh like I was doing a lot of reading about the Middle East to try and understand you know what the hell was going on um because Obviously, the, the uh, what we were getting from, from politicians wasn't the whole story. Um, and so I did a lot of studying there and combined those things. So it was something that I was interested in from the beginning. But now the Croatian culture has sort of taken on a life of its own where I don't really need to do research anymore. Like every once in a while I'll hear about a cool thing and maybe I'll work it into their society. But overall, they, they've... They started to live and breathe while I was writing The Desert Spear, and I don't really need to, to look anywhere else for inspiration anymore.
1: Gotcha. So our next question, and, and please, uh, hopefully the person who submitted will forgive me if I, if I butcher their name. Uh, they actually wrote it in Chinese on the forums, and so I had to use Google Translate. <laughs> so Guan Hong, hopefully I'm saying your name right, um, he wants to know, will you ever write a book that talks about how the first deliverer Kaji uh, united the people and drove the demons into the core?
2: A lot of people have been asking me that, and it's it's kind of interesting. I created this this whole mythology um, for the characters in, in, in the series, like in the now, where they talk about, like, oh, you know, the great deliverer of old, and we want to imitate that, and that, that's how we were going to beat the, beat the demons. I created this mythology, and so many people have been asking, saying they want to read, you know, the original text. I don't have a plan to write a book like that, but that doesn't mean that I won't once this series is done. I'm kind of focused right now, I don't want to have a, a series that goes on forever. I want, I want to have an endpoint, And so I'm trying really hard to end this series on the fifth book. Um, I am contracted for a sixth, and I will either make that a standalone book set in the same world, or if I absolutely have to, I might extend the story to that sixth book. Um, once that's done, then I can focus on where to go next, and I might very well... Uh, tell Kaji's story. Uh, There'll certainly be more about his mythos in the last book, The Core, which uh, will complete the series.
0: That leads us actually very well into Douglas's question. Uh, And I know you're an outline writer. I've, I've read other interviews where you talk about the fact that you lay things out. Do you know how this series ends though and are you are you writing towards that goal or or do you have just an endpoint in mind and you're, you don't know exactly how it's going to come about
2: I ha- I know exactly how it's going to end there is a uh, so like the, the book that I'm writing right now the skull throne I know absolutely everything that happens uh, I'm about halfway through writing it but it's all been laid out in such ridiculous detail that I know who lives who dies what happens how it closes out and then, the the last book, maybe the first two thirds of it are kind of like I don't know. I'll see when I get there. And then the last third, I know what happens. So like uh, I just gotta <laughs> have to get all the players like leveled up and in the right place to uh, nice. to complete the, the story,
1: <laughs> complete the game. Um, and yeah. Douglas has a follow up question: Does Mike Cole ever smile? <sighs> I what think we got smile? him to smile a couple times on the on the, on I've, the I've known him for 20
2: years, and I think it's happened a couple of times. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How did you guys meet through, through being authors as well?
2: No, not at all. Um, Mike and I first met in high school. Uh, Get I, out! Yeah, we've known each other for a very long time. Wow. Uh, I was organizing um, the Battle of the Bands at my local high school, and Mike was the lead singer in a heavy metal band. Uh,
1: Oh my God. This is so good. Like I, you guys have to like reunite and do (laughs) like play one of the cons. Have you guys thought about this? I would pay so much money to see that. Uh,
2: Look, I was, I was, I was just the event organizer. (laughs) I am not a musician. Uh,
0: There you go. You're the guy who can organize this.
2: uh, Mike, like he had crazy long hair at the time and you know, like he looked, you know, he looked like he was, he was in like Warrant or something and (laughs) He, would, he, he had mastered that kind of heavy metal, like, sort of singing. Oh, my
1: gosh.
2: It was, it was amazing. I, w- I wish that uh, it had happened in a day when we had, like, easily accessible video cameras, but sadly it's been lost to the... I'm the- so
1: mad. Like, I have, I'm so mad that we interviewed you after him, because had we <laughs> known this in advance, it would oh, have yeah. been so much... I I could I swear I could have gotten him to do some some heavy metal... On the, on the show. We'll have to we'll have to have him back on for an
0: encore. <laughs>
2: yeah, definitely. I, I can send you a couple of long hair pictures of him if that'll help. Yes, please be do. Fantastic. We'll
0: put it in the blog post. <laughs> Alright, uh, Sandy asks, one of the things I was hoping for after the first book came out was an explanation of what the demons are and where they come from. The first book hints that the world used to be a lot like ours, but the demons have set everything back. Will there be an exploration of the world before the demons and the origin of the creatures?
1: I guess that kind of goes back to, to Guan Hong's question as well.
0: Yeah,
2: uh, there will be a lot more. Like, like, the demons are the meta story. And so you have, like, the, the individual stories from book to book where, where the characters want to accomplish X. Um, but the last book will get very heavily into, like, the demon society and what their deal is and, and, and whether it's possible to stop them at all. And if so, like, what, what lengths people have to go to to do that. And so there will be a lot of detail about that. And in terms of of what the world was like before that, again, it's one of those things where like I don't have a plan to write about that. Mm -hmm. It's not really gonna be all that it's not that interesting to me to have like the characters like go into an old you know, abandoned ruin and find like an old cell phone and and be like, What is this? (laughs) Like, what is this (laughs) sorcery?
0: It's an OPEC 6515. What does it mean? (laughs) Mark Lawrence
2: uh, is an author who who does that in his books, and he does it amazingly well, and I I enjoy reading about it, but that's not where I want to take this story.
1: Tom did that in one of his stories, didn't you, Tom? (laughs) Didn't you with the Skittles? There were Skittles. Yes, yes. I'm going to find it, and I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to take a (laughs) question um, from one of our YouTube viewers, uh, Gwildeer Hopefully, I'm saying that right as well. Uh, did you have an inspiration for the character of Jardir? and if so, is there a story behind it?
2: Uh, Jardier, I don't know that I had a, a huge inspiration for him. Part of it was, I think, reading Shaka Zulu in college. You know, where you you have this uh, guy who was uh, uh, kind of made fun of for being a runt when he was when he was a kid, and ended up conquering all of Africa you know, using spear-fighting techniques because he invented a better spear and a better way to make formations and a better way to to work his troops and conquered an entire continent that way. And so I had this desire to have these two characters um, who were set up as sort of the messiahs of their individual societies and have them come into conflict as a result of that. And in Arlen's case, he's a very reluctant messiah, where, where he doesn't want that role, and he doesn't even and, and more than that, he morally feels that if he starts acting like the messiah and telling people that he's the messiah, they're going to put so much faith in him that they're not going to solve their own problems, and then everybody loses, and so he thinks that just even acknowledging that it's possible to be a messiah is a bad
1: influence, mm.
2: whereas Jardir honestly believes that he's the reincarnation of Kaji, and it's his job to conquer the world, and then turn them all into a vast army and take them against the the demons. Uh, And so you have these two people who both want to solve the same problem to save the world from demons. They both have these kind of lofty goals but they have very different ways about trying to achieve them and very different ways about how they see the people that they're trying to protect. Um, So I I don't think that there was any particular character that inspired but I, I liked, certainly in his early days, a lot of that was was from reading Shaka Zulu. Hmm.
0: I do like how you, you sort of Jamie Lannistered him up with the perspective shift uh, by kind of making people get into his head. I, I actually
2: called it pulling Jamie Lannister while I was doing it.
1: Whoa. Oh. Hmm? I just said, whoa. That was <laughs> pretty good.
2: I... I because that, that was exactly the idea. I made him out to be a, a villain in, in the first book. And even in subsequent books, he does, you know, he condones some pretty horrible things in order to, to get the job done. But by showing him as a child, like sort of weak and vulnerable and, and not understanding his life, and showing that his goal has always been to, to save the world, uh, it kind of gives a new perspective to him. And, and you kind of find yourself. Liking him in spite of some of the things he does. And that was always my goal. I I deliberately made the first third of The Desert Spear all about Jardier and didn't go back to the characters that everybody loved in the first book Mm. for a while because I wanted people to invest in him. And I wanted to reach a point where when Jardier encounters a problem, the reader wants him to solve it. And I think that after, like, once that was done, Then we kind of go back to the modern day, and you see him as an adult and see what he's doing, and suddenly there's this whole perspective shift where you're looking at what he's doing from a completely different light, and you still may not agree with it, but you see that it's not coming from a place of evil. It's coming from a place of, of trying to save the world.
0: Phoenix Mage uh, is watching the Hangout Live, thanks Phoenix, and wants to know, uh, this may be a little spoilery, so I'm not sure how much we want to say, but the question is, why did the desert spear weaken Arlen Bales? Is it the demon meat he ate?
2: Uh, I mean, that is a little spoilery. It's, it's something that I've acknowledged in the latest book, so I guess I can talk about it a little bit. Um, yeah, the, the magic uh, burns away with sunlight. And so when people absorb magic at night, it makes them stronger, it makes them faster, it makes them healthier. Old people get younger. Young people uh, age towards their, like, physical prime, so you'll have younger people. You know, you'll have fighters who are in the body of an adult, but they're 14 years old, but they've been absorbing magic, and it's been affecting them. Um, But none of them have powers during the day because the sun burns it all away, and so the magic kind of will reshape them a little bit at night and then burn away during the day. Arlen um, and uh, now Rena uh, have both actually eaten demon meat Arlen because because he had no choice because he was in the desert and there was nothing else to eat, and uh, Rena, because she knows the power it will bring, but by absorbing that into their bodies they've taken that magic and, and internalized it to an extent, and so now they're they have like a limited battery of magic that they can draw in during the day and then refill it at night. And so that makes them vastly more powerful than, than a lot of the other characters. Although, as the books go and, and everybody levels up and, and sort of the, the powers escalate, more and more magic items are being introduced, some of which work during the day, some of which don't. And it's kind of, like every book is a little more high magic than the one before. It was very low magic in the beginning and then you know, as as you win boss fights, you kind of have to ramp everything up to keep it going.
1: You're making a lot of references, which leads me to believe that you're either a big video game player or a uh, tabletop gamer.
2: I'm a, I'm a, a, mostly a tabletop gamer. I, I run the author d and game at Confusion. Um, I have played a few video games. Like right now, I'm kind of addicted to uh, DC's Injustice game on the iPad, which is basically just superhero cage match. But... Uh, I was, I kind of got addicted to like the Neverwinter Nights and sort of Baldur's Gate and then realized that I would never get anything done in my life if I kept playing these games and so (laughs) I, uh, I'm like a recovering video gamer and the break that I took after playing, I think it was right after Neverwinter Nights is when I started writing for real because I wasn't spending all of my time invested in someone else's world Mm -hmm. and started investing in my own. Do you
1: feel like it helped inform some of your world building decisions? We hear a lot about that from other authors who are big d and d players or or uh, you know other tabletop games um, do, do you feel like that's been the case with you
2: absolutely I feel like d and d really helped me understand how to put a story together how to build in you know nPCs how to how to create a, a world that people can interact with, and also sh- doing it in front of a live audience sort of taught me that uh, people get bored, and people will always try and open the door that you don't want them to open just because <laughs> they know you don't want them to open it. Uh, nobody ever wants to follow the map that you laid out for them. They always want to go the other way, and why Why should we talk to that person? We could just kill them. And so that keeps you on your toes as, as a dungeon master, which is how I usually played, and and that really helped me kind of realize that the story I want to tell isn't always what the, the reader wants to, to read. And you kind of have to keep your audience in mind a little bit while you're writing. You don't, you don't write what you think they'll like, but you have to keep it exciting. You have to keep it interesting. You have to answer some of the questions that they're, they're asking in their heads about why, why didn't you just do X. And that, a lot of that comes from gaming, and I, I think that it's heavily influenced the way I put a story together.
1: I just always want to woo the bar wenches. <laughs> That's, I just want to find the nearest tavern and just right hang click, out there, tr- have, a, have a couple drinks, and just woo and woo away. Um, <laughs> but Brandon Nichols has a real question, uh, which is uh, where does one acquire an awesome warded man action figure like the one over Pete's shoulder?
2: Oh, um, those were all – I had a contest uh, called Homemade Heroes, which was based um, – there was this magazine – I'm completely blanking on the title right now. It was like a comic book magazine, and they had this feature every month called Homemade Heroes where people would take action figures and sort of repaint them and maybe cut the head off and switch it with another one to make mm. customized action figures of, of, like, the sort of B-list superheroes that never got action figures made out of them. And I always loved that section, and I started making my own Jardier, uh which was sort of cobbled together from... Uh, some 300 action figures that I sort of cut apart and were gluing, was gluing together. And so I was talking about it on my website, and when I had an advanced read copy of of one of the other books, um, or, like, a set of, like, really rare sign books that was worth a lot of money, I I wanted to give them away, but I was like, well, how am I going to decide who to give them to? And I asked people to kind of customize, like, action figures or something to... Represent characters in the stories and I would pick a favorite and that person would win and I was not prepared for the amazing like flood of entries from people Um, Some of whom actually sent their entries to me. I didn't that wasn't a requirement People were welcome to keep whatever they made and just send me pictures But some people actually took the time to send me things and and, like I I treasure them like it's like seeing my characters come to life Uh, so cool there's no plans right now to make, to professionally make action
1: figures, but someday. Hey, well, the, apparently there is a, a desire for them, according at least according to uh, Brendan.
0: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, and then Sue says, hi, Pete, it's Sue from Twitter. Do <laughs> you, you, you know Sue? I know who Sue is, yes. Okay. Uh, just wondering if you would be doing another UK book tour when Skull Throne is published. I promise to introduce myself properly if you do.
2: I... Uh... I think Sue, I met her on my book tour for this last book when uh, I was three hours late for my signing because oh. of a train mishap, uh, and I felt horrible. But when I showed up, uh, everybody was still waiting, which was amazing. Um, and so I am going to be doing a book tour. I'll probably be doing a tour for every book from now on. Um, and i'm happy to do it i love visiting the uk and there's a lot of places there i haven't been to yet the scottish i I, I didn't have a scottish stop on my tour because i didn't want to spend too much time away from my daughter this year and the scots were less than pleased with that and and i've been inundated with requests to stop by there and so uh i'll make a few stops next year for worldcon in london and then uh when the book comes out in 2015 I'll, i'll do a full tour again so There'll be plenty of opportunities.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Peter. Where can people follow your work online?
2: Uh, You can go to my website, which is petervbrett.com. I'm on Twitter as pvbrett. And uh, I also have a Facebook author page. You can just search for Peter Brett, and it'll pop up. Um, And uh, I'm also running a couple of... uh, charity fundraisers for World Builders, which is Patent Office's um, charity for uh, Heifer International, and one of them is starting, uh, two of them are starting tonight. Uh, one is an auction for a seat at the Author d d table at Confusion, so uh, people can bid. We did this last year and, and it raised uh, almost a thousand dollars for the charity. We're hoping to top that this year. People can come in and bid to play with me, and Mike Cole, and uh, Wesley Chu, and Kelly Armstrong, and Cherie Priest, and Sam Sykes, uh, and Howard Taylor, um, and uh, one other author to be named uh, at a d and game, like right at the convention, like right in the gaming room. And we're going to film that and throw that up on YouTube. So uh, if you just search author D&D on YouTube, you can see the last two years games. Uh, Pat was in both of those, and we had Joe Abercrombie and Scott Lynch and Elizabeth Baer and um, a bunch of other authors. It's, it's really been an amazing uh, run, so we're doing that again this year, and people can bid to join in on that if you just go to worldbuilders.org. And also, just as part of the regular fundraiser, their stretch goal of $25,000, if they reach that, I get to shave Mike Cole's head.
1: Oh, yes, I knew about that. Patrick told me about that, and I, I think. But his hair is already so short.
2: Well, I, I think the more interesting part of this is that uh, I've never used a straight razor before, so this will oh. be my first time. <laughs> um,
1: so what you're saying is, Michael could die.
2: Yes, and we're going to videotape it, so uh, you can see the terror as I uh, as I sharpen the blade. I mean, I might get a barber strap just for the just for the experience. <laughs>
1: That's pretty awesome. I may also be doing a stretch goal. We haven't decided exactly what it is yet. Um, I told Pat I have no discernible talents, um, so we're we're trying really hard to figure out something that I could do to kind of benefit the community.:
2: Well so. it has to be an act of whimsy. It
0: doesn't have to necessarily be a talent. You can make was, monkey sounds.
1: I was thinking I was going to write a crazy poem about someone about the winner or about whoever you know bid on it or whatever, and then read it in a handstand. Mm-hmm. Cause I could do that. That ain't bad. Physically, I can what kind of do that. How
2: I can do that.
1: <laughs> you can write a poem, and you can definitely do a headstand. I don't, know,
2: that hard. I don't know if I could read while doing a headstand. Hmm. Is someone gonna hold that. it upside down for you?
1: I will have to hold it myself somehow. I'll have to Memorize make some, build some kind of contraption. Yes, <laughs> uh, but again, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a blast. Thanks for having me. That was and if great. you want to. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, our email address is feedback at swordandlaser.com. Our website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on Goodreads, and if you want to call and leave us a voicemail, the phone number is 415-7-SWORD-6. And also, real fast, um, as a lot of you know, that uh, we are members of the Boing Boing Podcast Network now, and so we wanted to tell you guys about a show that they are doing, uh, the Not Playing Podcast, Episode 2, The Guys Watch Die Hard, and they've never seen the movie before, so they chat about that for the very first time. It's a show where they kind of talk about movies. That everyone else on the planet has seen, but they haven't. I feel like I'd be really good at that show because I never see any movies. <laughs> I am
2: also terrible. A perfect
0: off. holiday movie, Die Hard. Exactly, it's Did a Christmas they movie. They found someone who hasn't seen Die Hard.
1: I, you know, I don't know if I've seen the. I have to have seen Die Hard. Surely I've seen Die Hard.
0: I can see the Nakatomi Building from my kitchen window.
1: <laughs> I don't get that reference, so I must not you have seen haven't Die Hard. You have seen Die Hard. Oh crap. All right. Well, you guys should check out the show. I'm going to listen to it. It sounds hysterical. Um, But yeah, head over to uh, boingboing.net podcast and you'll find it over there slash category slash podcast. We'll put a link in the show notes over at certainlaser.com. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next time.
2: Bye. Thank you. Bye.